a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist scholar and fanatical novel reader. This is the penultimate episode in our eight-episode journey alongside the great medieval contemplative, Julian of Norwich. I'm really excited today because we are going through my favorite part of Julian of Norwich's long text, her famous similitude of Christ as a mother and Christians as his children. Jesus compares himself to a mother hen in the Gospels, but we are particularly accustomed by the language and imagery of the Bible to think of God as a father, as Jesus teaches us in the New Testament. And the language of fatherhood suggests certain characteristics of God. When we think of a good father, we think of a dad who loves his kids, who protects them, who encourages them and who often provides for their material well-being. The biblical language of fatherhood is beautiful and enlightening. It helps us imagine God's character. What can we learn about the character of Jesus through Julian's depiction of Jesus, our mother? Let's turn to how Julian describes Jesus' mothering. You can look at this passage in chapter 60 if you're following along. Our great God, the supreme wisdom of all things, arrayed and prepared himself in this humble place, Mary's womb, already in our poor flesh, himself to do the service and the office of motherhood in everything. The mother's service is nearest, readiest, and surest. Nearest because it is the most natural, readiest because it is the most loving, and surest, because it is truest. No one ever might or could perform this office fully except only him. Chapter 60 Christ's motherhood is specifically tied to the Incarnation. As he takes on flesh, he takes on the office of motherhood, an office, Julian says, that only he could do to the full. So it's not that motherhood on earth, our own mothers that we can call into our minds, are models to help us understand Christ's mothering. 
It's that Christ's mothering is the original, the only true full mothering, childbearing and child raising, that good moms on earth provide a small and distant echo of, the true office of mothering. If you're a dad or have had a great dad, you may hesitate, even bristle a little bit at Julian's words of motherhood as nearest and most natural and loving. But let's stop and consider the historical implications of fathering and mothering. In the 14th century, fathers are associated with paternal love, but not the day-to-day task of caring intimately for a child's physical and emotional needs. Though I'm sure there were exceptions to the rule, most fathers were not changing diapers, dressing their children, being with them all day, feeding them, and so on. Think also of the incredibly high mortality rate of childbirth. Giving birth was risking one's life to bring in a new life, as it still is for some today. Motherhood entailed, and still entails, biological and physical demands on women, who are the ones giving birth and doing the arduous labor of breastfeeding. In chapter 60, Julian focuses on these aspects of motherhood when describing Jesus' mothering. But our true mother Jesus, he alone bears us for joy and for endless love. Blessed may he be. So he carries us within him in love and travail until the full time when he wanted to suffer the sharpest thorns and most cruel pains that ever were or will be, and at the last he died. And when he had finished and had borne us so for bliss, still all this could not satisfy his wonderful love. And he revealed this in these great surpassing words of love. If I could suffer more, I would suffer more. He could not die anymore, but he did not want to cease working. Therefore, he must needs nourish us, for the precious love of motherhood has made him our debtor. Chapter 60 Julian is pregnant with his children, the church, sustaining them within himself. Then he travails, which is an old-fashioned word for labors. This labor is filled with the most pain that anyone can imagine. Julian here draws together the passion and Christ as the laboring mother. On the cross, Jesus painfully births us into eternal life and dies. But even the passion itself, even birth itself, does not adequately testify to or fully satisfy his love. Christ tells her, if I was able to suffer more, I would. He has pursued suffering down to its final drop in order to bring us life And though he cannot die again, he will never stop in the labor of parenting. Now this last phrase is striking. It is necessary, fitting, natural for him to feed us. For the dear love of motherhood has made him debtor to us. This strong language, Christ being debtor to us, might initially make us uncomfortable or confused. We're more familiar with the language of the Lord's Prayer, asking God to forgive us our debts. Very true. But here Julian draws again upon the biology and physicality of motherhood in order to express something essential about who Jesus is and how he loves his children. Humans are not the kind of animals who give birth 
and then let their offspring raise themselves, like many species. We're hardwired to raise our children ourselves, even to raise other people's biological children who have needed it in varying circumstances. We become debtors to our children, desiring and obligated to raise them, both by our often surprisingly overwhelming love for these new and helpless little creatures, our bringing them into the world, as well as biologically. Scientifically, we now talk about bonding. We know about the chemicals and the hormones that allow, especially after childbirth, to build foundations of human connection that last long after infancy. Mothers are awash in hormones after birth, causing their milk to come in, their love for their baby to kickstart a life filled with new deprivations, like waking in the middle of the night many times or patiently soothing fussy babies time after time. I remember being so frustrated after having my oldest daughter because my sleep fundamentally changed. I had always been a light sleeper, but when my first child was born, I started waking up if her breathing got quieter or if she had suddenly made one of those tiny infant noises of snuffling or squeaking that new babies do so often. I would get up and hold my hand over her mouth to check if she was still breathing. In doing so, I have only followed the pattern of millions of other mothers, and begrudgingly, because I was almost always angry that I had woken up, calculating immediately the slim amount of sleeping time I had left until I would have to nurse again. Julian obviously had no clue what we know now about hormones, but she would have known that change in awareness, the waking up and holding your hand over your baby's head. Julian understands Christ's love through this prism of the office of motherhood. It is not that Jesus has changed after childbirth and pregnancy, as women do, but Julian portrays this particular drive of mothers to protect, feed, and raise their children as a good way to understand an inherent, essential attribute of Jesus. Christ's love for his children constitutes his very being. It is his nature. It is hardwired. And unlike me, the earthly mother, frustrated at 2 a.m., knowing I'm going to have to be up at 3 a.m., Christ tells Julian, if I might suffer more for you, I would. This Jesus feeds his children with his very own flesh, which Julian compares to breastfeeding. Again, think of the difference between Julian's day and today. I can't tell you how many times I've been so thankful for the Walgreens by my house. No Walgreens in the Middle Ages to run and grab formula if you were in a tight spot. No pumps to quickly generate milk. No freezers to stash it in. If you were the mother, your very presence was the sole lifeblood of your child, unless you were wealthy enough to hire a wet nurse. Fathers can come and go for days at a time, and did often. And I'm not talking about skipping out. I'm talking about very loving fathers going about the daily business of life, working all day in a field, traveling to the next town for market day. Mothers could not do those things without bringing their children with them. Julian wants her readers to recognize a God already weakened by taking on flesh, willingly becoming our debtor because he bears us to his love. Christ's love is like a mother's because his food is everything to his children, and he will not leave them 
More than that, it is not in his nature to do so. I also want to note that these physical mothering metaphors about Jesus do something else important in our knowledge of who God is, something we may overlook now because we live in a more equitable society than Julian did. We all theoretically know that God is beyond gender, but we so often use masculine language to describe him metaphorically. We naturally think of God as far more male than female, maybe unconsciously, but I think it, in the way we talk about him, it's true. In the Middle Ages, this masculine emphasis was part of an important and church-approved sanction of widespread misogyny. Eve ate the apple, therefore, women are inherently more sinful than men. Scientifically speaking, women's bodily functions are disgusting and lower than the noble, non-opening up, non-fluctuating bodies of men. Whole books were written about these things. Large systems of theology were predicated upon them. Julian's adoption of the physical aspects of motherhood is a daring pushback, a challenge to the misogyny often embedded in official church teaching. It speaks to God's character as the best of male and female. Equally important in this passage, though I have focused on Christ as a mother, is the role of the child. Julian puts her reader and herself in the position of the child. Julian returns to one particular image over and over, which is the child falling down and running or crying out to be comforted by the mother. Julian encourages us when we ourselves fall, either through difficult circumstances and pain or through our faults and errors, to use the condition of a child. That's a direct quote. That's her language. Use the condition of a child. Children do not hesitate to cry out for help when they fall. Their immediate impulse is to look for their mom or their dad when they're hurting. Adults, on the other hand, often hide themselves away in their pain, especially when the pain reveals their weakness, their limits, or their own mistakes. Julian believes we are all fundamentally children in our understanding of the world before we die, and that in our troubles we must, like wounded kids, run to our mother Jesus for comfort. There's a lot more I could say about this passage. It's the subject of a chapter in my dissertation. But we've already been going for a while. I also talk about this section in my Advent lecture, and um, I can send you the link of that if you're interested in hearing more. Um, So you can email at oldbookswithgrace at gmail.com. If you want to think more about what Julian writes concerning our status as children, check out chapters 61 through 63 of Julian's long text. There's so much beautiful language in there that I think you will truly enjoy. I want to end with a quote that has encouraged me, both during my doctoral studies and now, during the pandemic, and my own ongoing experimental pathways of my career. For at that time, he revealed our frailty and our falling, our trespasses and our humiliations, our chagrins and our burdens and all our woe, as much as it seemed to me could happen in this life. And with that, he revealed his blessed power, 
His blessed wisdom, His blessed love, and that He protects us at such times as tenderly and as sweetly to His glory, and as surely to our salvation as He does when we are in the greatest consolation and comfort, and raises us to this Spirit on high in heaven, and turns everything to His glory and to our joy without end. For His precious love, He never allows us to lose time. And all this is of the natural goodness of God by the operation of grace. Chapter 62 I really love the last line. For His precious love, He never allows us to lose time. This speaks to me as a parent and as a writer and a scholar. As a parent, I have to remind my children of certain things every day. My three-year-old has been on a spree of hitting his sister lately, and no matter how many timeouts we give him, inevitably, he will hit her again the next day, or the next minute, for that matter. Sometimes it feels we are stuck in the classic Bill Murray movie Groundhog Day, especially during the pandemic. Versions of the exact same day happening over and over, confined to our house. After a very long day of parenting, I often lose hours on my phone, scrolling through the mindless space of social media, reading random posts on Reddit. Then I feel stricken by guilt and like I've wasted my time. Or I will spend a lot of time on a piece of writing and then feel devastated when it's rejected or upset at how it turned out. It somehow never ends up being all that I thought it would be and hoped for in its process. On a more intense note, I poured years of my life into a career path and vocation that I truly loved, only to find no jobs on the other end. I've wrestled with grief and discouragement and humiliation as I have left the obvious career path into academia, where the anxiety and the sleepless nights and the distraction from my children and the hours and hours and hours of thought and work all in vain... On my good days, I know they were not, and I value them. But on my bad days, I feel pretty sad. Perhaps you can relate in your own unique circumstances, whatever they are. Julian's words are a great comfort to me. From the stupid to the agonizing, each drop of time is redeemable and shall be redeemed. I do not know how. I do not want to be glib. I, nor Julian, have no desire to smooth over the sharp, variable, and excruciating edges of people's suffering. But I'm thankful for the encouragement. I hope you are feeling Julian's encouragement in this tough season. You can follow me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace, or check out the text of this podcast at oldbookswithgrace.com. Thank you for listening today. 